Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Today's episode, we have Millie. Hey there. Lauren. Hello. And Justin. Silk from bees, GPS using pulsars, teacups that purify water, time-travelling mine-finding machines, and Batman. These are all great areas of Australian scientific research being worked on by CSIRO, which we'll be getting into this week. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. Today's City of Science is Black Mesa, I mean Black Mountain, research laboratories in the Australian Capital Territory ACT, which is CSIRO's major ecological plant research, land and marine animals research centre. It's been around since 1929. Um, It is one of the major hubs of CSIRO's scientific research and has been on the cusp of some pioneering research in bees and applications for biomaterials, as well as gene genetic research, Australia's National Insect Collection and Australia's Herbarium. It's also where we have a lot of quarantine work being done. So if you're really interested in uh, national research, uh, come to our national capital and Black Mountain. Um, yes. What's a herbarium? Where does that come from? I'm pretty sure it's where they keep all the herbs. Is that like a place where they have like one of every type of herb? That's a good question, Millie. Herbarium, or sometimes known as a herbar, is actually a place where we keep all specimens of various types of herbs. We can also use it in mycology, which is the study of fungi, as a place to, to preserve fungi, which has a similar thing called a fungarium. We also have another one called a Xylarium, which is a herbarium specialising in wood, or a hortarium, which is a herbarium specialising in cultivated plants. I'm being a little overwhelmed by all of these arium words. There's quite a lot of them. So as a reminder, this is the Black Mountain Laboratory. It's not Black Mesa, although as cool as that would be, though it is close. Hey, Justin, did you hear? Area 51 exists! Dun, dun, dun. As confirmed by the CIA. As confirmed by the CIA. It doesn't have aliens. Oh. But I suspect that maybe the nice little town of Nightvale might be in that area. Anyway. The really funny part about the Area 51 is they CIA actually cultivated all the myths and the legends because really it was just a boring airstrip with the occasional plane landing at it. Wait, so like, that's what they do there. It's just an airstrip. It started planes. off as just an airstrip and they do other stuff there but... And there's a base there, but they cultivated all this mythos around it because, like, the reality is it's really much more boring than that. So they cultivate myths instead of cultivating herbs? It's distraction. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is it a mytherium? I think, I think Area 51 definitely is a mytherium. So anyway, go to Black Mountain in ACT if you want to learn about horticulture, plant science, gene, genealogy, and be at the cutting edge of Australian biological research. Okay, so um, one of the scientists who's actually actually working at the Black Mountain facility is Dr. Tara Sutherland, and her and her team have been working on bees and their silk glands. Bees? Otherwise, yes, bees. My God. <laughs> I was surprised to find out that bees actually had silk glands, um, but a lot of insects apparently do. They're just not necessarily used. Now, Why do they have them if they don't use them? Uh why do we have an appendix if we don't use it? Appendixes have a purpose. It's just not a useful purpose anymore. <laughs> well, maybe that's the same with bees. So you're telling me that bees used to swing from leaves like spiders? Maybe it was the intermediary stage between before bees could have um, wings to fully fly. 
they used the spider silk, like spiders do, to navigate by swinging around. And then they grew wings, and then they didn't need the silkworm anymore. Much like how spiders, and some spiders are actually evolving wings, um, could also make a similar transition. I think you're spinning a web of flies with this, though. I could be. That could be Gabigadri. Anyway, back to bees and silk. Silk is a really strong material, and while spider silk is really flammable, we've been looking at ways to apply the strength of that material to other applications. And part of that is, that is key to that, is being able to produce it ourselves. Because while lots of insects produce silk, it's a really slow process, and it's not really good for harvesting at all. There's a reason that genuine silk for clothing is really expensive. Now... Generally, we're, we're quite good at identifying exactly what genes in insects are responsible for silk glands. Um, Dr. Tara and her team have managed to identify that a certain type of honeybee's genes um, is a really short string, and it's quite easy to isolate compared to other insects. And maybe it's a short string, it means that not only is it easy to isolate, it is also easy to transpose, because you're trying to literally fit a small gene as opposed to a really long, complicated one, which you may not know what it does completely. Exactly. So what they've done is not so much harvesting the silk from the bees themselves, but they've taken the genes that's responsible for the silk from the bees and they've put it into E. coli. Okay, hold on a second. E. coli, for those of you who aren't aware, is like a flesh-eating, terrible bacteria. When you hear about contamination of water sources and a lot of disease being spread that way, one of the main disease agents is E. coli. It's not a great bacteria. It's actually pretty terrible for you. And if your water concentration has enough E. coli, it can be pretty deadly for you. Um, Australian water is fine, don't worry about that. We don't have any instance of that, but uh, or much instances of that. Um, Isn't E. coli a virus? Yes. You said bacteria. Could be a bacteria. Listen, <laughs> now, viruses it... and bacteria are very different. Uh, bacteria. Uh, I thought it was a bacteria because it's used, um, the plasmids of E. coli are used because you can easily insert um, genes into their plasmids. And you're right, it is it's actually a bacteria. bacteria. Lauren wins out, and my crazy extrapolation and experience from working in water quality is not actually factually correct. <laughs> okay, my bad, my bad. I, I misremembered. Well, basically, what, what they do is they take E. coli, and E. coli is really useful because of its properties of being able to get in amongst other cells and repurpose them for its own use and basically destroy systems. And what we, what we do is we have stripped down the bad stuff out of E. coli, and we've put in... Bee put genes. Our, put out put our bee genes into E. coli. And so we've then created a sort of something of a soup of, of various <laughs> proteins that we know are required for the um for making silks. We've put in our bee-infused E. coli, and from there we've been able to draw out some strings of silk that have been artificially made. Now, we're not able to mass-produce it just yet, but this is a really important step on our way to being able to mass-produce these sort of biomaterials. What's really funny about that is E. coli, is, aside from being a, uh, a, a generic bac bacteria, it's also quite commonly associated with uh, feces and gut uh, intestinal bacteria. So you can, for reference, your gut is full of it loads of bacteria and that's really important that's how we actually function with stomachs um so e coli just lives safely there in your own stomach but what we're doing is actually repurposing e coli which <laughs> into making silk so something that is inside our stomach is being combined with bg dna to be actually produce silk did you nearly say bee genes <laughs> i'm pretty sure it's the bee genes watch out guys they're gonna have silk bee genes soon i think we should stop we have bee genes saturday night fever so this is some great work being done by Syro, especially in adapting materials from animals to help improve our world through some interesting and creative mixes.
You wake up. You find yourself travelling, hurtling through space in a spaceship. You're not quite sure where you are. You've just made a jump through light space and you've ended up in a place that's far away. None of the stars look familiar and you have no idea where you are. This is a really distressing circumstance. Unfortunately, Siri does not work out this far. <laughs> and even Google Maps and their ever-present street view has not managed to reach this section of space yet. What do you do? Fortunately, Dr. George Hobbs from Cyro is here to help you with the magic GPS-like properties of pulsars. Now, pulsars are a sort of interstellar body. And what's, what define, why we call them pulsars is because they give off lots of pulses of energy. And we can measure that energy. Um, and it, a long time ago, we couldn't really get much useful out of it, but we've recently become very good at getting regular readings from them over about an hour. And because of this now, we can use it for interstellar space navigation. One of the big problems with navigation is that you need reference points. In space, not only is up and down meaningless, so is north and south, and every other possible direction. Not only that, the stars, which is your go-to position thing for navigating here on Earth, are completely different. So you either have really, really complicated star maps that are moving and very dangerous, or you use some point of reference that you can look for. Pul pulsars could be that point of reference. Basically, there's a collection of pulsars that we've come to identify over time really well. We know what sort of pulses to expect, with, expect from them, with what frequency, and how long it'll take them roughly to get from the pulsar to Earth. And because of this, we can set up machinery that can look at at least four different pulsars, um, read the x-rays that they're getting off them, and see how long it took for those the the waves from those pulsars to reach the machinery and from there determine its exact location within a couple of kilometres and its speed within a couple of centimetres per second, which is insanely accurate in space. One of the really interesting parts is this is exactly the way that GPS works, except with satellites instead of pulsars. Your GPS system looks to satellites and then determines by measuring the time it takes for a pulse it sends to get to a satellite and back again. That's why this GPS actually stands for Global Positioning System and involves lots of GPS satellites. What we're doing is replicating this system where we go to three or four satellites and wait for the pings back and then use that to triangulate our position, but doing that in space with these points of references as pulsars. It probably would have been limited to pulsars if you had any other space or uh, stellar entity that is producing a identifiable fingerprint you could use it in a similar way. But pulsars are doing all the hard work for you because you don't even have to query them or pulse them with something. They're already giving off regular signals like big broadcasting antennas for space. So this is some pretty exciting research being done out in Australia uh, out of CSIRO's astronomical sciences and radio observation areas, which is one of CSIRO's real big strengths. So if you want to get more into celestial navigation... You might be uh, tuning into the stars sooner or later using pulsar navigation. In general, Australia is very good at astronomy and other space-related sciences just because of we have large expanses of, of land that don't have very many towns or other human settlements around. So while in the city looking out to space can be really difficult because there's so much light and noise and radio waves going everywhere, we can go out to the middle of the outback in Australia and it is very quiet and very clear. 
that's why, as we talked about last week, the Square Kilometre Ray is a really great area of scientific research and why Australia is heavily involved in that project. Millie, do you know what beverage I love above all else? Is it fizzy drink? No. Is it milk? No. Getting close. Is it water? Kind of. I mean, what, what this story is about is there's going to be a water purifying teapot that's been invented. A, a teapot that purifies water? Yes. Would that get rid of the tea from the water? I'm not sure that that's an <laughs> optimal teapot. Also, teapots already purify water through the boiling process. This would actually be purifying water as more of a filter through carbon nanotubes. Oh, that's really cool. Explain how. So unclean water is full of a whole bunch of stuff such as salt, which is, if there's too much of, the body isn't actually getting all the water that they need because there's an imbalance in the salt and water concentrations. And it's full of viruses, such as E. coli, which we were talking about before, which can be really bad for you. Wait, no, we established that E. coli was a bacteria. I have learned something. I'm pretty sure um, E. coli is still pretty bad for you, though. Yeah, that's correct. If you ingest it, yep. On the deadly side, even. (laughs) So it's really important to have clean water. Well, I know that right now we've got some plants that we use for cleaning water. Like, even in, in Australia, the whole point of the desalination plant is to get rid of salt from water so that it's okay to drink. That's done using reverse osmosis, which is like if you boil a kettle and then let all the steam collect on the top and then it come back down, you're left in the salt in one place and the water in the other place. This is where it ties into teapots because actually water treatment can be very, very energy intensive. Either require boiling or adding chemicals or a lot of other energy intensive applications. Which is great for the developed world like Australia, but if you go to a developing country which actually has water quality problems, it's really difficult to get consistent, safe and easy to use clean drinking water. In which case this water purifying teapot type thing would be a lot easier. That's right. So this has been developed in combination with SARA and Singapore University of Technology. Uh, A carbon nanotube based water purifier, and this is uh, passive in that it doesn't actually require active energy to purify the water, which means it's a lot simpler and a lot easier to use for remote communities that don't have access to safe drinking water. Some treatment works on uh, just getting rid of bacteria and microbes in the water, but this one specifically works against purifying with salt, which is actually usually very, very difficult and requires boiling to get rid of. Well, part of that is just because of how small carbon nanotubes are. I mean, it's somewhat in the name, like something that is that is nano, like we use nanometers. They're like... 10 to one, the negative 9. 10 to the negative 9 metres is how small a nanometer is. And carbon nanotubes are so small that when we line them a lot together, there's just enough room for the H2O particles to pass through, but not quite enough for the salt particles. The knackle, sodium chloride. There's other salts around as well. Okay, that's also true. So, it's a really ingenious way of actually purifying water without having to have any energy, don't have a big heavy treatment plant, and do it in all sorts of places. A bit expensive at this stage, but hopefully small portable devices um, will be able to get out there into the communities which need them most. So this is a great bit of uh, water science being done out of Australia and Singapore. Another great invention by the CSIRO. 
This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. Today we've talked about um, using the stars to navigate, bees making silk, pulsars using as navigation tools, as well as carbon nanotube helping us get clean water. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.